keep bringing you down? Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face. Hi, folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 480 of the Survival Podcast. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to continue on with doing some listener feedback stuff. I've got it coming in so fast uh, and so so much volume and some great questions and some great things that are going on right now, things that people want to know about. People are saying, help me with this or what do you think of that? And I just feel like this show's about you. So... Um, I know it's two in a row. I know neither one was on a Monday, but uh, and I know some people this is not your thing. You want me to get on here and pick a subject and go for an hour, but honestly, it, without the audience, there is no survival podcast. And with with the backlog I have, I just feel an obligation right now to work through it a bit and do a few extra shows like this, as I mentioned yesterday. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take our take care of our housekeeping. Uh, first off, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Marjorie, down there with Backyard Food Production. Her location is somewhere south of Austin. That's about uh, oh about a million miles you can pick from and try to figure out where that is if you want to. We keep that quiet because she asks us to. But the reason she's done that is she's built a real homestead, something that produces food for her and her family. Uh, these are people that produce their own vegetables. They produce their own protein. They have an amazing rabbit breeding operation, chickens for uh, laying eggs, an immense garden, uh, and one of the most incredible water catchment and distribution systems I've ever seen in my life. And they've taken all of that and more, and they've put it on a DVD that you will watch over and over and over again if you want to be able to turn your property into the same type of thing. And I think you can adapt her techniques to a tenth acre lot or a hundred acre ranch. It's up to you how you want to make them fit in. It's up to you to take what you want out of them. But you'll learn more there than I think you'll learn in most DVDs on the subject. Twenty four ninety five is stupid cheap. If you have not bought one, go get one today. I'll put it to you that way. Uh, next up is Berkey, the Berkey guy with Berkey Light Water Filtration Systems. Man, check this guy out. He's uh, he's one of the top distributors for Berkey, and there's a reason because he cares about his customers the way I care about my audience. Um, every bit of feedback I've ever heard on the Berkey guy is, hey, I called him up, I had a question, he took care of me. If something was out of stock, he did what he could to, to accelerate that or made me a deal on something else. I mean, the guy works his butt off because he cares about the people that he's selling to. So if you're in the market for some way to purify your water and drink healthier, safer water, whether times are tough or just because you're tired of drinking the crap they put in your tap, check out the Berkey guy. All right, next up, I want to remind you to connect with us. YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter are the three big ones. We have a YouTube channel. I'd really like to see that go over 5,000 uh, subscribers as soon as possible. I also have a uh, Facebook fan page, and my buddy Brian has over 3,000 friends that like his uh, fan page. Uh, ITS Tactical Guy, real good guy, don't begrudge him that, but I'm under 3,000 folks, so help me out, I need to pass Brian, I mean, we're military buddies and we screw with each other, so, you know, I need to be in the lead on that one, so if you haven't yet joined my fan page on Facebook, please do that. Uh, next up, Twitter. I mean, I, I do Twitter as much as I can, guys. I try to tweet two or three times a day at least instead of just having my shows published on there and bring you some information on Twitter. So uh, if you guys get on Twitter and follow me, the more that are following me, the more I'll stay motivated to make sure that I'm doing that. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members along with about 20 different videos by me that are available nowhere else. Uh, discounts to about 20 different vendors, over $100 worth of free ebooks, and you're supporting the show at a whopping, what, 20 cents an episode. So when you get off the, uh, off the show for the day, if you think, you know what, that was worth 20 cents, consider joining the MSB. One more thing before I go into the main topic of today's show. is sort of unrelated, but I want to let you guys know about it. Um, as I've said a few times on the show, and I, I don't want to talk about it all the time, but once in a while I'll mention it, 
I have a new podcast. It only lasts for about five to eight minutes a day. It's in video, and it's called Five Minutes with Jack. And it's about building businesses specifically on the Internet more than anything else. But there's a lot of larger and business thought in there, CEO thinking as well. Well, I just published episode 16 of that, and I am looking for a partner, someone to work with me on a project. Uh, I have a site called SaveOurSkills.com. It is, uh, there's a little button for it on SurvivalPodcast.com. I have not been taking care of that site. I have not been updating it. I have new plans for it. I do not have the freaking time. Uh, it, it's probably about a 15-hour-a-week job. I could probably do it in seven, and I don't have the seven hours. I am out of time. Uh, for specifics, go to jackspiritco.com and watch episode 16 and read all the show notes. And if you, uh, I'll tell you this, if you like skills, primitive skills up to modern skills, everything from starting fires with bow drills to how to change your own oil, if that is something you're passionate about, people knowing those things, and you know WordPress, Take a shot at it if you'd like a shot at the position. I'm going to be taking applications for that for uh, between now and somewhere around August 10th to 15th. I'll make a short list if there's even a long list to make a short list out of at that point. I don't know how many people are going to want to do this. And uh, I'll do some interviews and pick the person that's going to be. And I want you to know you're going to have your own. It's going to be your own thing. It's going to be backed by me, but it's going to be your own thing. But don't apply for it if it doesn't fit you. I'm looking for somebody that's actually passionate about this stuff and believes that preserving our skills is important and has at least enough technical know-how that I can kind of give you a system and say, go, and you can go. I don't have time to train anybody. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which is taking your questions, your comments, your commentary, your feedback. Um, there's uh, Most of these actually came in yesterday. All right, uh, and you might think, well, you say you have this backlog, <clears throat> you know, and you want to work down the backlog. Well, the backlog keeps building by how many, how much stuff keeps coming in. And all I did yesterday was, if stuff came in, if I thought that's a good question, I put it from instead of the the questions folder into the queued folder. And this morning I woke up, and the folder is you know queued up for an entire show. So that's why, but and, and there's some good stuff here, and uh, I'll also go in and pull some older stuff as well. But let's go ahead and take first question. This comes from Tim. And Tim just, this is really an observation and something I should talk more about because I've talked about the low taxes I pay in Arkansas, but I haven't really given you the entire formula of why that's the case. Uh, Tim says, Jack, it's common for rural property to be greatly undervalued on tax rolls. I've been looking at rural property in Texas. I thought I would check the valuation on the tax rolls versus the asking price. All of them on the tax rolls for less than half of their asking price. And he's right, and there's a, something you have to, <clears throat> you really have to watch out for. Um, most of the time in small rural communities, this doesn't happen, but you may want to talk to a few people who have purchased property within the last year and see if it did, because this is a gotcha that I need to make sure you're aware of. It is often common, not even in rural, just rural areas, but in some suburban areas, that a house will go on the market, let's say for $150,000, and the tax assessed value might be $84,000, and you'll have very, very low taxes. But if the city or municipality is short on funds, it is very common for them to immediately reassess the property on its next uh, available term to the price you paid, stating, of course, the property must be worth a hundred and whatever thousand dollars. That's what you've paid for it. And since it has a market value at that point, anything that kind of restricted, you know, like some places have, like California has a restriction on how much you can appreciate the value of property from a tax assessment uh, standpoint. If there's any type of restriction, it becomes you know, usually in most areas, unless there's some kind of loophole set up to protect people, null and void. Because now you have established a market value by purchase. And the longer the property has been held, often the, the greater the delta that's there. So you got to be careful of that. Now, it doesn't happen a lot, especially in these, these areas uh, that are these rural areas. But again, my, and this is something I, and I wanted, this is why I was like, I got to talk about this, is when I've talked about it in the past, I've never gone into it. And it's kind of a mistake because I bought my property six years ago now, and it's it's something we did then, but I, I just forgot about kind of. And, and Tim brings it to the surface: the the value of the property and what it's assessed at has a direct reflection on your taxes. So your taxes could be let's say five hundred a year, if your purchase uh, causes the assessed value to double. Now your taxes are a thousand. 
based on the common tax rates uh, of the area. So you got to check into that. And again, the easiest way I know to do that is to take a look at the area that you're in, making sure they're, you know, it doesn't have to be down the street, your next door neighbor. It could be anywhere. And it is as simple as knocking on a door and say, hey, uh, my name's Jack, and I'm looking at buying a house just about a mile from you here. And here's my situation. I was wondering if you could give me any input, you know. Um, I don't need your name. I don't want any personal information. I, I'm just worried about the taxes here. The taxes on the property are very low. Uh, it looks like the tax office has underassessed the property, and I want to know if if you bought your place recently or not. And if they say I, I bought it 15 years ago, you say you probably can't help me. Maybe you know someone that can. Then here's my concern: that when I buy the property, they're going to reassess it, and it's going to increase my taxes. Do you know if that's happened to anybody here? And, and most people are pretty reasonable. And if you get a door slammed in your face more than three or four times by making that kind of a, you know, I'm going a new guy coming to the neighborhood request, odds are it's not really a very receptive to new people neighborhood. You might want to rethink things anyway. I can't overstate how important it is for you to talk to people in an area before you buy property in the area, especially when you're looking at rural uh, properties that are a little bit more spaced out. People have their own view of the way that their area is run. People that move out into these areas don't do it so they can conform. They do it so they can write their own rules. And they kind of form this loose coalition. Most times they know each other better than people in the city, but each person has their own idiosyncrasies, and they all kind of leave each other alone, and they come together on the common ground and leave each other alone on other things. You may find that, for instance, that there's an area that's sparsely populated, but everybody in that area is a member of the same one church. And you'll be viewed as an outsider as long as you're not a member of that one church. I've seen that. right? And you'll find sometimes they're all a member of that one church, and they don't care if you are or not. That's just a choice. I've seen it go both ways. All I'm saying is you should get at least, and you can't know that. That's always a roll of the dice. You should always get a feel for the neighborhood. And this question is a good way to have an excuse to talk to a few people. Uh, and it could save you a ton of money long term. Because if you're going to have that assessment doubled on you or go up by a third, you might even think, I'm okay with that. But you need to know before it happens. Uh, because I've seen it. When I purchased, and this is how I learned it, I learned it the hard way. When I purchased this property here in Arlington, it had an assessed value of $84,000. And when I paid $120,000 on it, guess what the next tax assessment on it came out at? $120,000. Contesting that was not even possible. Because all the tax assessors said is, Mr. Spierko, this is a market value. And at that point, I knew I was done. I didn't even bother. I said, okay, I understand. Thank you. So please think about that. Great question. Great piece of insight. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. See, guys, this is why I said I want to do more shows like this. All right, so um, the next one comes from somebody. And, and to frame this, back when the health care bill was being hotly debated and people still thought we would maybe have a chance to defeat it, because uh, I, I believe it's bad for America, um, that's not a Republican talking point. For the, anybody that's new to this show, I am not a Republican. And I am not a Democrat. I am a Libertarian, which basically takes the best concepts from both parties, uh, personal liberty and economic liberty, and puts them together and says, if, this is, if either party stood for what it says it stood for, these are the things that it would actually do. Um, so that's, that's the best way I can describe libertarian. I just want you to understand, when you hear me say something that sounds like it's anti-current administration, it wouldn't matter who is in the administration. I'd probably be anti-current administration, so don't take the comments the wrong way. But I said, here's what's going to happen. They're going to pass this damn thing. And people wanted me to, to cheer on the fight and all. I'm like, I'm not even going to bother because this is going to happen. And it did. And I said, there will be no public option. And what will happen is they'll, they'll create a situation where people can't afford it and uh, can't afford what they've created and will be fined if they don't participate. And sooner or later, the public will scream onto the government, oh, government, give us the public option. We, we want this free health care, but it's not free like you said it would be. And uh, it'll never be free. There is no free lunch. is a constant. And in fact, even the public option won't be free. It'll be cheaper because they can lose money. 
unlike an insurance company which has to make money and they're going to destroy everything and uh, they'll get it to where it's completely a government run healthcare system well the first shot in that has already been fired this comes in from Carl and he says and here they go again and then this is the forwarded message Representative Lynn Woosley, Democrat, California, shocking, uh, will hold a news conference Thursday to announce the introduction of her bill to establish a robust public option in the, in the health care exchanges created by the Affordable Care Act. Reps Pete Stark, Democrat, California, Jan Sichakowski, Democrat, Illinois, and others among the 121 original co-sponsors will also discuss the bill and a new scoring from the Congressional Budget Office demonstrating the considerable cost-saving potential of the public option. So here's what they've done. They got the frickin' bill passed, right, without the public option, which was the big sticking point because of rationing and things like that. And now they'll present the public option as a solution to the problems the new bill will create. Will this thing from Woosley get, Woosley get through? I don't know. I doubt it. It's not possible. It's not probable at this point in time. I think that there's enough people pissed off about the whole thing to begin with <clears throat> that the administration and the Senate and the House do not have the will to try to do this. We're, we're looking at August in a few days going into a November midterm election where they already think the Democrats are going to get slaughtered. But, and here's the big but. Uh, the administration may, may, may get behind us and make a big push on it and tell all of these people that already fell on their sword, you're dead anyway. You can do this on your way out, and they may give it a shot. If they try it, the bloodbath gets worse in November. Now, does that mean the country will be saved in November? No. Um, but I do believe that the best way that we can keep our current government, unless we throw everybody out, which is what I really want, uh, the best way we can, we can limit their damage is to, 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 to split them. If there's a Democrat in the White House, I want the Congress and the Senate controlled by the Republicans. And conversely, I'd like to see when there's a, if there's a real Republican in the White House, not a fake one, I'd like to see the, the, Dem, the, the House, the Dems control the House and the Senate. I know that sounds crazy, but it puts them in deadlock and they have to work together. But I want very minor minor majorities in either situation, and I sure wish these guys were at least true to what they claim that they're true to. But there it is, guys, just like I said it would happen. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost so obvious to me now, everything that these clowns are going to do. You, you put it in there without the public option, because that's the only way that you're going to get through. And it's much easier to add something, right, than to get the initial conglomeration in the door when it's got all of these things. Because now, the debate centers around one thing, the public option. And no one can, you know, take it anywhere else, because the health care bill is already in place along with all the hidden taxes and screw jobs the American people got. And what's happening right now, this is this may be the real reason for this. There was a part of the, the, the health care bill, this is important guys, listen up, that um, forces 1099s, which is for miscellaneous income, into a lot of situations where it never existed before. One that's getting a lot of stink around it right now is the rare coin and gold coin business. So that basically if I sell a dealer uh, $1,000 worth of gold, he has to give me a 1099 stating I earned $1,000 in income. Now, of course, on my taxes, I can say, well, I paid $1,200 for the gold and I lost $200. Uh, it's, it's, I still have that control. But the paperwork is killer for these dealers, especially in gold. Silver, not so much because the limit's $600. Bucks. So with silver, I could sell the guy silver, for, you know, sell the guy $400 worth of silver. It's a substantial quantity, and I could sell him another $400 later. With gold, a one-ounce coin, I'm over $600 bucks by a long shot, right? Gold goes up a little bit more. I'm over with a half ounce. So that's every transaction they have to do this. And there's a lot of other places these 1099s are coming into. Uh, online merchants, your payment gateway, your credit card uh Your credit card account or PayPal or what have, have you, if you take in more than $600 a year, they're going to $10.99 all the income received. And, and that's kicked up a, a shitstorm of stink because they buried that in the health care bill. Well, stuff like this will do what? People can be angry about what? One thing at a time in this country. So all of a sudden, everybody rallies around this. Everybody forgets that and the fight that's going on against it. That could be another, I don't know how this is going, but I am telling you, sooner or later, these clowns are going to force a public option on you, whether you want it or not. Um, start thinking about how to prepare for that eventuality uh, for your own individual life. Let's take another one. Here's another one, a short one. Guys, you're going to see why I'm doing this today here. 
Um, Chris says, Jack, not sure if you ever mentioned it, but is there a problem with making biltong from previously frozen meat? I don't want to wait till next season to make some venison biltong. Another one of you guys playing, um, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's safeguard Jack against his own admissions. I've talked about biltong so many times. I've talked about how to make biltong so many times. And yet, I've never said, hey, you know what? If you have some, you know, big old piece of uh, venison out in the freezer and you want to try this, just go defrost it and do it. You absolutely can. Uh, when I first learned about biltong, it was from a book written by Peter Hathaway Capstick, who spent a large part of his life. Unfortunately, Mr. Capstick is no longer with us. Uh, he passed away quite a few years ago, actually. Um, and uh, like many African hunters, it seems that maybe his liver gave out is part of why, at least part of why anyway. Um, and I guess, you know, maybe a gin and tonic is something you need after staring down some of the things those guys stared down. Um, anyway, Mr. Capstick wrote this, uh, wrote for... Um, Guns and Ammo for many years, and there's one of his books, I don't remember the title of it, that had basically taken mostly the, the content of the book where these articles all put together into a compilation, and one was on Biltong. And I read that article, and by this time he was living in Florida, and uh, he had talked about how he had always had a taste for Biltong, and it wasn't available in the States, and he learned that the low humidity of an air-conditioned room, even in a place like Florida, was an ideal condition to make biltong. He gave the recipe that I've given out many times. And this was like July. And much like uh, our, our friend here, I was like, I want to try this. So I had a pretty good bit of uh, meat from some psycho deer, which uh, kind of looked like a little elk. They're a, 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 an Asian deer that looked very much like, again, a scaled-down version of our elk. Dark, dark coloring, though, but antlers that are, that are very similar to that. And um, so I'm going to try this. So I took about three or four pounds out, and I followed his recipe exactly and uh, strung it up in my office. And the dogs gazed at it longingly for about a week until it dried out. And it came out beautifully. And I've done that many times since, uh, where I've taken frozen meat. Uh, I've had times where I've had like a big pot roast. And uh, maybe we bought it, we threw it in the deep freezer. And, uh, you know, a month later, two months later, it's, it's hot out. I don't really feel like making pot roast. That's kind of a winter thing. And I looked at a big chunk of meat and said, you know what, we could use some biltong. Defrosted it, cut it up, strung it up, biltonged it, no problem. So you absolutely can make biltong from previously frozen meat. With the same guidelines I, was, I would give you about whether or not it's a good idea to cook that piece of meat. If it's freezer burnt and, 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 and ruined because uh, the packaging wasn't right or something, just as you would discard it rather than cook it on the grill, Biltong is not going to magically fix it. Uh, but if it's been previously frozen and you want to defrost it and Biltong it, absolutely, which in a long-term shit-hit-the-fan situation, folks, think about what that means. That means that if you have a freezer full of beef and you don't have the, the means with which to smoke it, and we have a long-duration power loss... You could preserve all of your red meat. Now, this doesn't work for chicken and pork, right? But all your red meat could be preserved with biltong with no need to smoke anything or heat anything as long as you have a dry area to string it up. That's why I think making biltong is a skill you should master. It ain't hard. I'll give you the instructions one more time. Cut the meat thick, about an inch thick both ways or thicker. Okay? It's not thin like jerky. Get all of the fat and tallow out of it. Fat in your biltong sucks. Spray it lightly with vinegar. I prefer apple cider vinegar. Coat it with salt. Uh, you can use you know, shaker salt. I prefer something like sea salt, the thicker granules. Give it a good coating. Coat it with black pepper and coat it with ground coriander. The pepper and the coriander to taste. I prefer a lot of pepper and a little bit of coriander. Mix that together. In, a, in peacetime, let's say, sit it in the refrigerator overnight. If there's no electricity, that may not be an option. Let it sit in a tub uh, overnight, or at least eight hours. Uh, remove it from there, maybe spread it out. And I usually add a little bit more black pepper at this time because I really like the black pepper. And sometimes I add a little bit of coriander because coriander is nice. I usually never add additional salt at this point. There's been plenty. String it up so it's not touching each other. In an air-conditioned room, if you don't have air conditioning, you do the best you can. Keep it in the shade, out of the sun if you do this outside. Humid environments, it's not going to work. Well, you need to find the driest area you can for the situation. 
let it dry out, it is done. You do not need a biltong box. People that tell you you need a biltong box and a light bulb are wrong. This stuff has been made exactly the way I've just described uh, without the refrigeration portion in South Africa for thousands and thousands of years. Traditional method, vinegar, salt, pepper, coriander, nothing else. String it up, dry it out. The meat almost mummifies. It's much thicker than jerky. It tastes different than jerky. When you eat it, hide under your under your blanket upstairs with a flashlight so that nobody knows you have the biltong out because people will come and take all your biltong away. Uh, great one. Let's go ahead and take another question. This one's just great. I mean, I, this was like a gift getting this. This came from Kathy. And uh, I've said so many times when talking about Social Security that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. Uh, it, it, it has to go broke eventually and that it is absolutely robbing America of its wealth, and it's actually contributing a great deal to the devaluation of our dollar. Uh, that it is a failed program, and while we can't take the 69-year-old lady down the street from you living on it and just take her Social Security away, uh, and nobody wants to do that on either side of the aisle or in the public, um, there is a way to take and take these people that are living on it and pay them what was promised to them, to take maybe a next group of people a little bit younger and give them a portion and wean people off and get our young people out of paying this extortion in a period of about a, a 10 to 15 year weaning off period and dissolve this program and get rid of it because it is a scam being perpetrated on the American people. And what I usually get in response to that is, no, it's not. You're just a heartless bastard, Jack. Oh, God, how can you do this? Social Security's worked wonderfully. They keep saying it's going to go broke, but it didn't. Yeah, we keep paying more and more and more. Most people have no idea how much you're paying. Most people don't know that every week when you get your paycheck and you look on there and you see your contribution to Social Security, you pay double that because your employer matched it. And trust me, if your employer wasn't paying it there, he could afford to give it to you as a raise. It's coming out of your wages. You're paying twice what you're being told. And you're getting a terrible return of investment. But this... This is freaking beautiful from Kathy. It says, a caveman could understand this. Why did Bernie Madoff go to prison? To make it simple, he talked people into investing with him. Trouble was he didn't invest their money. As time rolled on, he simply took money from the new investors to pay off the old investors. Finally, there were too many old investors and not enough money from new investors coming in to keep the payments going. Next thing you know, Madoff is one of the most hated men in America and he is off to jail. Some of you know this, but not enough of you. Madoff did, did to his investors what the government has been doing to us for over 70 years with Social Security. There is no meaningful difference between the two schemes, except that one was operated by a private individual who is now in jail, and the other is operated by p politicians who enjoy perks, privilege, and status in spite of their actions. Do you need a side-by-side -side comparison? Well, here is a nifty little chart. Bernie Madoff takes money from investors with the promise that the money will be invested and made available to them later. Social Security takes money from wage earners with the promise that money will be invested in a trust fund and made available later. Bernie Madoff, instead of investing the money, Madoff spends it on nice homes in the Hamptons and yachts. Social Security, instead of depositing money in a trust fund, the politicians use it for general spending and vote buying. Bernie Madoff, when the time comes to pay the investors back, Madoff simply uses some of the new funds from new investors to pay back the older investors. Social Security, when benefits for older investors become due, the politicians pay them with money taken from younger and newer wage earners to pay the geezers. In other words, your money doesn't go to a trust fund, folks. Your money pays Edna down the street, her Social Security, because they spent her money 50 freaking years ago. It is gone. Last one, or that two, two, two from the last one. When Madoff's scheme is discovered, all hell breaks loose. New investors won't give him any more money. Social Security, when Social Security runs out, money, they, out of money, they simply force the taxpayers to send them some more. When Ronald Reagan saved Social Security, folks, He didn't save it. He raised the tax rate on it. That was all that was done. They just made you pay more into a failing system. How much more can we afford to pay? How long is it going to be before every week with your paycheck where you see your Social Security contribution? They'll just put a little picture there now. There's your old person. That's the person that got your money. I'm not putting that old person down. I'm putting the government down for creating the situation. 
Because that's what it's getting down to. We're going to be very soon to a one-to-one ratio. One worker paying one Social Security recipient. It's three-to-one right now. Let me say that again. It's three-to-one right now. You really could have a picture of your old person. And you could have a picture of your other two taxpayers. And you'd be a nice little coven, right? Your nice little group. You three are providing Edna her Social Security. That's what this freaking monstrosity has turned into. And the last one, Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff is in jail. Social Security. Politicians remain in Washington. The taxpayer, and this is is interesting who this comes from, that's someone who works for the federal government but doesn't have to take a civil service examination. Ronald Reagan. Well, Ronald Reagan uh, saved Social Security by raising the tax rate threefold. So... There you go, folks. You tell me where I'm wrong. You tell me where Social Security is not a Ponzi scheme. You tell me the day you spend your money and send it into Social Security that's invested for you, and I'll tell you you're either uninformed or a liar. Because your money is gone the second it hits the federal treasury. It is going out in general spending and to pay Edna down the road and every other old person down the road on Social Security. Now, again, I want you to understand me. I am not for taking away Social Security from old people. But we have to fix this problem. We have to extract ourselves from this problem. And there's something interesting I said recently, and I don't think it, maybe it was completely driven home, and maybe this will help. The entire nation bets on inflation. They bet on it with their investments. They bet on it with their property that they purchase. The government bets on it. They don't want runaway inflation, right? They don't want, you know, Argentina, you know. They don't want, you know, inflation doubling every other day. But what they want is a good, steady 2 to 4% a year inflation rate. It makes people stay in work. It makes people stay invested. It makes people stay in employment longer and retire later in life. Here's another thing that it does. Your Social Security is a percentage of your wage, right? If inflation increases, wages generally increase along with inflation. Somewhere close in the curve. If the wage increases, the amount of money taxed in the form of Social Security increases commensurate with the wage earnings. That helps keep the Ponzi scheme going because the, quote, investors, which I call the mark, is required to put a greater investment share in, which keeps the train running longer to be able to use the new money to pay the old investor with. What happens when we have deflation? What happens when wages, even if wages and prices decrease? You know, they give the Social Security people the cost of living raise. No matter how much it decreases, they can't go take it back. They can't give them a cost of living decrease if we have deflation at 4%. You can't go back to the recipient of Social Security and say, you know, just like we gave you a 1.1% increase, now we're giving you a 2.2% decrease. That's the third rail of politics, buddy. You, You can't mess with that. We should, but we don't. If you get a cost of living increase, shouldn't you also have, if there's a decrease in the cost of living, a cost of living decrease? Now, have we had enough to make that the case? I don't believe so yet. Sure, property values are down, but you go to the grocery store, food pretty much costs the same. You know, rents have not really come down a lot either. But if it happens, it's still, you see what happens. Wages go down, cost of living goes down, obligation to the existing recipient remains a constant or increases. That's another way that this nation is bet on inflation, and it's another way that if we have a deflationary period, it's in some ways a lot worse. All right, let's go ahead and take another one now that I've depressed you sufficiently uh, with that bit of goodness. This came from a guy I'm going to reward because he sent his questions in reformatted in the way I talked about yesterday. Don't send me a book with your question buried in it. Send me your question and your book underneath it. So he sent this beautiful thing back in bold question. Here's his question. Will Bermuda and St. Augustine seeds typically break down during the composting process? Should I not be worried about this? Story. I used your comp. So now I know the question, right? Now I can boom through this. I used your composting video to build myself some compost bins. I had them together, stacked along the side of the house in 45 minutes. Thanks for the great video. I did have a question about the materials I place in the bins. I haven't really found an answer by searching the web or reading Mel's gardening book. I want to include grass clippings in my compost bin, but I'm not sure if I'll end up with seeds uh, in the bin. My lawn is mostly Bermuda and St. Augustine, but the various weeds throughout my garden. My fear is I'm dumping dried glass clippings in the compost bin, later using this compost in the garden. I'll be sowing weed seeds in my garden. Will seeds typically break down during the composting process? Should I not be worried about this? The answer is, in most cases, yes. Uh, you, you, you get compost going, and generally you end up with peak temperatures 
uh, internally of 130 to 140 degrees. I've seen it go as high as 150, and that's going to cook off most weed seeds. And they're actually a lot of times going to become part of the compost. They're going to get broken down in that decomposition as well many times. I've also seen seeds germinate in the compost bin. I've turned it over and seen you know white shoots that are making their way to the surface in the darkness. Uh, so it doesn't always work. Here's the thing. The grass seed I'm not too concerned with. Very few people let their grass grow high enough before they cut it where there's seed heads on it. So the grass itself, if you've got Bermuda and St. Augustine, if you're cutting it when there's no seed heads on it, go nuts with that. Uh, make sure you mix some browns in with it. Uh, if you don't do that, it's not going to break down very well for you. It's gonna, you've got too much nitrogen and not enough carbon, so you've got to have a, have a good mix. What I tend to do is stack up some of my leaves from the fall and uh, run those over with the lawnmower as well. Put them in a bucket and kind of put handfuls of each into the uh, compost bin to get a good mix going. And that stuff cooks hot, and, and that's going to work well. You, you, you really have to worry about those various weeds and their seeds as well. So that's something that you can end up with some uh, uh, into, your, your, uh, into your compost. And if you don't get a good cooking temperature, you'll end up with some weeds in your garden. I look at it this way. You're going to end up with some weeds in your garden anyway. Try to minimize the seed input. Uh, do things like keep your grass trimmed and, and, and low. Uh, don't let it get too high. Don't let the seed production go too crazy. You're still going to pick up some seeds. Make sure you're using a good composting system, getting a good hot core temperature. Make sure you're turning it so everything's exposed to that hot, hot temperature at some point in time. And mulch the crap out of your garden. Two, three inches deep of mulch. And that's going to take care of most of your weed issues for you anyway. Uh, good question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Next question is also from Alex, who has learned to follow the new um, procedure perfectly. Actually, it's been the old procedure, but since he fixed both of his questions, I decided to answer both of them for him. Now, this is a tougher one. Alex says, can you, uh, let me pull this question up here, can you recommend a good resource that uses methods other than fractional reserve banking? What do you think is the best system, i.e. safe deposit, low fees, uh, likelihood of withdrawing my deposit and shit at the fan scenario, and why? And basically he says, I turned him on to Lou Rockwell's podcast, which I think is outstanding, by the way. I love Lou Rockwell. And uh, he uh, was listening to uh, their episode 154, and it was take your money out of the bank. So basically what this guy was saying is that you should keep at least some, if not all, of your money out of the banking system because the piddly interest rate they're paying you anyway doesn't add up to a hill of beans. And that as long as you have cash in the system, they can loan more against it and continue the inflation curve and continue to produce new money. The bank is based on, you know, you have money and everybody else has money in there and they can loan up to 90% of what's in there. When that money comes back in in the form of new deposits, they do it again and again and again. And the money supply is expanded not just by the Federal Reserve, but by the banks themselves. And this, the action of you going down to the bank and saying, hey, I'd like $10,000 cash, how that actually usually pisses your bank off. They don't like that. They don't like it at all. They, they get more upset about that than if you want a cashier's check. Cashier's check feels like it's going to go back into the system somewhere. But when you get cash, God knows what you're going to do with it. You could just sit on it. That would be horrible, right? Because it's your money and you don't have a right to sit on it. Um, I, I kind of go to the middle on this. Um, there is something to be said for banks. They're a relatively safe place for now to keep your money. And if they're going to become unstable and unsafe, we'll have warning signs and we'll have time to, uh, to get our money out because most people won't pay attention. There could be a point where there's panics and runs and the FDIC even has problems and things like that. But... The, the warning signs will be so huge, and yet they'll be so ignored up until the point where the problem actually happens. Because the sheep are not going to pay attention. So don't worry about getting in line with the sheep. You'll have plenty of time to get in line ahead of the sheep. The, the concept of reducing the bank's leverage is a nice one. But for you and me, with a few thousand or a few tens of thousands of dollars, um, we would have to get together in a lot bigger numbers than we gather on in this show to even make a drop in the bucket the big leverage in money is by the millions and millions and hundred millions of sheep that have their paychecks cycling through with direct deposit and the big money, the big exchanges, the credit default swaps and everything else like that. So it's a token thing. It's like it's like voting for, you know, Bob Barr in the last presidential election. You know he's not gonna win, you know he's not even gonna add up to five percent of the vote, but damn it, you wanna do something constructive with your voice. So if you want to do that, that's fine. 
for me, I will continue to keep the majority of my cash in the bank for now. For now. Um, I will always keep some level of cash and some level of gold and or silver in physical state on my person where it can be redeemed or used elsewhere. I will always, always, always do that as well. I'll always keep some significant portion in cash that's accessible outside of the banking system altogether, and that does include safety outside of safety deposit boxes. <clears throat> Obviously, I can't be more specific than that. It's pretty stupid to tell people, hey, I keep my money uh, under my pillow, and it's like five grand, man, because then somebody's going to come to your house and go under your pillow and take your money away, right? My money's not under my pillow. The only thing you'll find under there is a sheet. Um, but just giving you an example there. Alternatives to the banking system, well, cash, <laughs> gold, silver, and stuff. One of the things that you can do is take some of that cash and turn it into long-term storage food that you're going to eat anyway. right? That is going to hedge against inflation. Even if there's deflation, the problems that are associated with deflation, like losing a job, it hedges both ways. So I like that. Paying off your property instead of being in debt, that's a better place than having your money sit in the bank while it's eroded and the property costs more long-term. Uh, owning your own vehicles. These are all ways to put your money into concrete assets that you own and control that are very difficult for anyone to ever take away from you. These are just some thoughts, though. But you, sooner or later, if you're living debt-free, even if you do all that stuff, you're going to have something called surplus cash. And for now, things like the banking system are the best thing that I know of to do with it. That said, there are ways to open bank accounts in other nations. You know, you can... Go to Hong Kong and open up an account in their bank. You can open up a Canadian bank account and put some portion of your money there and hold it in the local currency. There's even ways to do that and hold U.S. dollars outside of the U.S. banking system. There's a lot of ways to do things like that. So you got to get creative with it. But I wouldn't go overboard, and I wouldn't think i got to get all my money out of the bank because, trust me, if everybody does that right now, we're going to make a bad situation a hell of a lot worse and we could bring on the financial apocalypse everybody worries about just by doing that. So it's not a good idea to freak out, run, and take all your money out of the bank. Not putting all your money in the bank, though, that is also a good idea. Just like not putting all your money in stocks. Not putting all your money in bonds. Diversifying your investments with intelligence, not just different names on the ticker symbols or the banks or the CDs in which they're held. I actually like CDs. They pay a reasonable interest rate. You can do staggering. That is in the bank system. But hey, at least you're getting a decent return on investment. The way you do a CD staggered is you take, let's say I have $9,000. I buy a one, a two, and a three-year CD, each for uh, $3,000. And the one-year CD, I set it so that when it renews, it becomes a three-year CD and gets the higher interest rate. I set the two-year CD so that when it renews, it becomes a three-year CD. Now I end up with all $9,000 invested after two years, and a third of that money is always going to be available within one year maximum. And yet all are, are put into three-year CDs. So I get a better interest rate, uh, but my money is really only tied up for two-thirds at a time for anything greater than a year, and only one-third for three years. And I can, you know, a penalty on a CD isn't that bad. It's not like taking money out of a, a 401k plan, for God's sakes. You know, there's no tax penalty on it. It's, it's pretty insignificant uh, against the whole. So, you know, it might kill your interest that you've earned and maybe a little bit more, but if it's an emergency, you can do it. You know, it's, it's not like locking money up in some kind of annuity that you're going to have to sell your children to get the money back out. So I, I'm not going to be ever telling you, uh, get, get away from the banks, get away from the banks, especially like to hurt the fractional reserve system. That's just, uh, I'm sorry folks, if, if all 14,000 of you and me did it at the same time, we're going to make barely a rounding error occur. It, it's just not significant enough. We would be better suited to turn our attention toward things like Ron Paul's audit of the Fed bill and want to know why that hasn't happened. Start holding our elected officials accountable for that. And everybody that sponsored it and then voted against it, if they're running for election this year, they should be in your frickin' crosshairs. You should be voting against that person. And you should write them a letter and call them on the phone and say, because you did this one thing, you're toast. Just so they know. Because if they get 10 calls like that, they know there's about, oh, 10,000 people it takes to make 10, 000, to, to make 10 calls. 
So there you go. I'm trying not to be too political today, but this money thing is so tied to politics. If you don't understand our political system, you'll never understand our fractional reserve system, you'll never understand the Federal Reserve, and you'll never understand the thievery that's been perpetrated on the American people stealing our wealth. Uh, let's go take something else. This question comes from Mark. Mark says, why is pool water not suitable for drinking in an emergency? I realize there's chemicals added to the pool water, but I would think that it's cleaner than, it, say, a suburban creek water. What, would a backpacking water filter remove these chemicals and make it safe for drinking? Um, let's start out with why pool water is not safe for drinking. Um, in your tap water that comes out of your sink, unless you have a well, there is something called chlorine. It is one of the chemicals used to keep your water safe to drink. In itself, especially with giant public water systems, it is not inherently evil. I prefer it out of my water, but I see the value in it to get the water to my tap safely and keep me from getting sick and me and my family from dying. Okay, So I'm not anti-chlorine the way I am anti-fluoride. So chlorine in of itself, not evil, but chlorine in your pool is at a much higher concentration level than chlorine out of your faucet. That's why you put chlorine in a pool. Otherwise, you could just throw the water in there, and you'd only have to keep chlorine enough in there to keep the level sufficient. And you, well, you, if you own a pool, you'll know that when you first start a pool, you, you end up, whether you're using chlorine or Bacquasil or any other system, you end up putting chemicals in like crazy. Like It seems like overkill. You keep doing, you keep doing, you keep doing. Eventually, it stabilizes, and the amount you have to add every week or two weeks diminishes to a lot less. But it takes a long time to get that concentration level up. That's because there's not that much chlorine in there. You're trying to saturate it to a parts per million that's acceptable for pool use, which again is much higher. Chlorine is a poison. It is a toxin. It will kill you if you were to take. Chlorine in liquid form in a highly concentrated state and drink it, you will die a quick, painful, miserable death. If we take chlorine gas in sufficient quantity, it will poison you and you will die. Chlorine is a poison. That is not, again, that doesn't always mean that something is bad for a use. Aspirin is a poison. Don't believe me? Eat a bottle. You'll die. You'll bleed out of every part of your body and you'll die a horrible, miserable, painful death. So aspirin's a poison, yet it's actually a very good uh, pain reliever. Every drug on the planet is a poison. You know, from penicillin, erythromycin to, to Lexapor, anything that you can take in sufficient quantity to kill yourself with is a toxin. So used in smaller quantities, it may have a, 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 a beneficial effect, but used in sufficient quantities beyond its therapeutic level, becomes toxic. Pool water, if you drank a glass of it, you're probably going to be okay. If you tried to live on it for any period of time, that chlorine will start to cause problems. The other side of this is pools compared to even something like a lake, right, are very small quantities of water. And if your pools actually uses a pool and people are getting in and out, in and out all the time, there's all kinds of nasties that we carry around on our bodies that don't do us a lot of harm on the outside but don't belong on the inside. And not to be gross, but the cleanest human being in the world has some level of excrement on their body and that's released into the water chlorine does a good job of killing it but not killing it at all and that's why sometimes we have infections that come from pools even without somebody drinking the pool water and even if the pool's been properly correlated even if it's been a little bit higher than it should be so those two factors together are why you shouldn't drink water out of the pool will a backpacking filter get the chemicals out can't answer it don't know which filter You have to check the filter's capabilities against what you're trying to filter out. And you need to know, will it filter out things like E. coli, not just chlorine? So there you go. Best thing to do with pool water if you have to drink it, boil it. You'll boil the chlorine out of it pretty quickly. Now, you need to boil it longer than you normally. Normally, you do not have to boil water for any period of time at all to make it safe to drink. That's another myth. Take water out of a stream. As soon as it boils, it is safe. It doesn't have to boil for five minutes. It doesn't have to boil for ten minutes. You begin pasteurizing the water at 160 degrees. You begin really killing off nasties at about 190. And the time it takes to get from 190 to 212, everything's killed. So if you want to boil your water for five minutes to feel good about it, go ahead. I'm telling you, once it boils, it's good. You're safe. Done. You can drink it. Right? With pool water, you want to boil a little bit longer because you want to evaporate that chlorine gas out of it. But the nasties killed off. Filtration, again, 
have to look at the individual filter's capabilities. If we have to use our pool for drinking water, which is part of why we have a pool in the first place, we will boil that water even if we then filter it because it is the safest method. If I had to do it with a filter and rely just on a filter, I would probably be okay with that as long as I knew the filter had the right capabilities. Optimum circumstances, I'm going to boil any water before I drink it, uh, even if I can filter it as well, just because it's the safest route. Okay, I've not, I know I've done some politics today, and I don't want to overdo it, but Jason sent this in, and this is something we need to look at, and we need to realize what's going on, because this may be the greatest threat to our republic in the history of the republic. Because, and most people won't see it that way, and most people won't understand it, and that's why it's such a great threat. Uh, Jason says, uh, I thought it was, you might find this interesting, the article's about states trying to pass an electoral college process. Uh, I find it ironic that these same states that fought for the Senate when the nation was born. Let's talk about what he means by that. When the nation was first formed, uh, the Senate was not elected by the people, it was elected by the state's uh, legislature. So Massachusetts, you would have voted for your state senator, your state rep, however Massachusetts set their government up, and you would have voted for your congressman out of your district to go to Washington for you. The, the state legislature then would have elected the senators, the two senators, and sent them to Washington. This was to keep smaller states from being overrun by bigger states. This is to protect the interest of the minority over the will of the majority. This was to ensure a cooperative republic versus... Uh, a democracy which is uh, two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner tonight. That's what a pure democracy is. That's why we have a freaking republic. Now, the same states that have done most of this now are the, at least a lot of them are the states that have uh, have gone under this popular uh, election ideal uh, that sounds good but is disastrous. Let me just read the article to you. Massachusetts may join effort to bypass the electrical college. Uh, the state legislature is poised to give final approval this week for a new law intended to bypass the electoral college system and ensure the winner of the presidential election is determined by the national popular vote. Both the House and Senate have approval uh, have approved the national popular vote bill. This is the, the House and Senate of Massachusetts. Final enactment of the votes are needed in both chambers, however, before the bill goes to the governor's desk, the Globe reported last week. Governor Devil Patrick's press office didn't immediately return the message this morning seeking a comment on whether he would sign the bill if it makes its way to his desk. Under the proposed law, all 12 of the state's electoral votes would be awarded to the candidate who receives the most votes nationally. So what that means is that all of these, these states, and here's the states, Illinois, New Jersey, Hawaii, Maryland, Washington have already adopted the legislation, and there's 12 other states that are getting close. Uh, uh, there's enough other states out of the 12 that are getting close. Uh, back to the article. Supporters of the change say the current electrical college system is confusing. People are too dumb, is what they're saying, to understand that, that whoever wins Texas gets Texas's votes and whoever wins Florida gets... We're not smart enough to understand that. It's confusing to understand that. If you're that stupid, you shouldn't be voting. I'm sorry, okay? So it's confusing and causes candidates to focus unduly in a handful of battleground states. So in other words, they have to give a lot of attention to a state where they have a chance of winning but might lose because they have a lot of votes. Tough shit is the way I feel about it. Critics say the current system is not broken. They also point to the disturbing scenario that candidate X could win nationally, but candidate Y won in Massachusetts. So even they're saying, even for us, we could get screwed by this, folks. Don't always think it's going to be our horse that's winning. In that case, all of the state's 12 votes would go to candidate X and the candidate who was not supposed, who was not supported by Massachusetts voters. The measure passed both branches of the legislature because Massachusetts is freaking stupid and uh, did not make it all the way through the, and, uh, but did not make it all the way through the process yet. Let me tell you why this is a threat to the republic. Popular vote allows a few localities to control the entire nation. If you go to this state, if you could take the, the, the 20 biggest cities in America and win in 15 of them, you're going to win just about any presidential election out there. It takes away from the ability of a state like Wyoming that only has its three little electrical votes to really matter. It's also, like I said, it's why they were so hot on the census because there's states that might lose a rep and then lose a vote. The entire way that this government was set up is a 
republic, a democratically elected republic, was to ensure that minority rights were protected against majority opinion. All right, There's a place between rights and opinion. And because you think something should be a certain way, doesn't mean that even if everybody thinks it should be a certain way, the, 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 the final safeguard being the Constitution. Everybody in America decides, you know what, this free speech thing's got to go. Unless you can get two-thirds of the states, call a constitutional convention, amend the Constitution, ratify a new amendment, get it passed, and override the old amendment, doesn't matter if 80% of the people in a vote prefer doing away with the right to free speech. Because the right is protected above the opinion. A safeguard in this was the way the Senate was originally elected. The state having to say over who their senators were based on a much closer proximity. So then, who you voted for to go to Austin in Texas or, you know, uh, Tallahassee in Florida uh, or what, Jefferson City in Missouri or Sacramento in California, who you elected there had a national influence. And we did away with that. Now they want to do away with the way we elect the president. So, instead of focusing on a few battleground states, presidential campaigns can focus on a few battleground cities and ignore the will of the rest of the country. That's what this is really all about. This needs to be opposed. And if you live in Massachusetts, you better find out if your rep, your state rep, voted for this crap and let them know, hey, how you feel about it. Now, if you disagree with me, tell them right on, do it. But you better think about the unintended consequences of something like this before you turn around and support it. That's all I'm saying. Know why you believe what you believe. That's enough politics for today. Let's finish on something a little happier. Okay, this one comes from Candace, and Candace says, Hi, Jack. On yesterday's show, you asked what it is we enjoy about prepping. What I enjoy most is gardening. After work, I take 10 minutes to water and do some weeding. It just gets me centered and fills my soul again. It's my quiet time. I enjoy going out to the garden and finding what is ready to be picked to go with dinner. Last night, while the barbecue was getting ready, I picked beets, an amazing thing in mid-July in Southern California. Before I had to go back to work, I really enjoyed canning, making mulberry and pomegranate jam, and baking homemade bread to go with them. I'm hoping to get back into that, but in the meantime, I would like to try dehydrating. I've been away from any kind of prepping for several years, just living, trying to make ends meet. But now I'm getting back to what I really enjoy. Most is the feeling I now ha- I, I have now that I am once again gaining some control over my life in spite of what state the rest of the world is in. Thanks for the show and helping me get back on track, Candy. Candy, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for letting other people know that they're not alone. Thank you for letting them know that when you feel good doing something like this, it's not because you're crazy. You put it perfectly. You put it perfectly. I'm getting back into what I really enjoy most is the feeling I now ha- that I now am once again gaining control over my life. And that's what homesteading and prepping And survival philosophy and modern survivalism is all about, summed up in one phrase, gaining control over your life. If anybody looks at you like you're crazy because of who you are and what you do, that's what they don't understand. Every step you take toward greater independence, folks, every single step is about more control over your life. Garden, more control over what you eat and how much money you spend. Solar energy, more control over how much money you give the electrical company and how dependent you are on them. The ability to defend yourself in your home, less dependence on the system that will come and take a crime scene report after the crime has occurred and after you've become a victim. Thinking for yourself instead of thinking whatever the radio tells you or whatever your party of choice tells you. A greater realization that even though some of the things that they do at your state capital and our national capital and down at your town council are important, what you do in your life is more important. How you choose to live your life is more important. And that changing yourself is the way to change your nation. All of these things center you to a point where you're the captain of your ship Versus being drug along by the ship that is the common popular will. And that's where most people are. Whatever the collective thought of the day is, it's a giant ship and dangling behind it 
behind it are millions of strings. And attached to each string is you skipping across the water like a rock. And when you realize you can cut the string and walk away and command your own ship, sail your own, sail your own ship in your own direction and have control, you break that cycle. And the more people that break that cycle, the more liberty we have. We can't take liberty just with a ballot box, with an election, who happens to be in charge at the time. Because in the current system, the best of them become at least somewhat corrupt. Well, we can change the direction is by changing it for ourselves. Taking control for ourselves. That's what survivalism is really all about. That's what prepping is really all about. Controlling your own life. And yes, it's a very enjoyable experience. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or you live better. Nobody up there cares, they're leaving.